Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 205. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Dan Farina. I'm glad to join you again here, Kip. And I'm grateful to have you back for what will definitely be an abstract conversation. And to the audience, we'll do our best to provide examples and keep you along for the ride. But the title of this episode, pronounced can be am is a loose portmanteau that I thought of to describe a duality that really captivated me once on a walk. When I was thinking about someone in my life with whom various people had conflicts and how they described this person as being X, Y, and Z, that he simply is these negative traits like angry, unreasonable, impatient, etc., And for one reason or another, I was transfixed by the language choice of is as opposed to can be. And then I started thinking about these words on a personal level and how I describe myself. Is it fair to say that I am patient or that I can be patient? And in that case, what are the examples that are excluded by that possibility? And from there, my mind began to wander under this duality. And to get us started, I wanted to talk about my perception that if you are something, there's little need or motivation to change it or dynamically do something with it because that's the reality you perceive or that others have projected upon you. But if you can be something, then you can begin to envision circumstances when you are not. And in exploring that possibility, you might learn about yourself grow or change in positive, maybe even negative ways, where for me, the state of being something feels far more stagnant and rigid. I certainly hear what you're saying with respect to the am. Am is something like a box within which one can become trapped. An example that comes to mind for me here is psychological diagnoses. It can be very useful to receive a psychological diagnosis because if parts of one's life aren't making sense and feel painful and coercive, then having an explanation which captures those phenomena and cites a cause can give one a sense of clarity and power over one's situation. However, once one begins to say, I am depressed, one can begin to miss the other aspects of oneself which aren't captured by that box and miss the ways in which one is capable of transcending that box through personal change. More generally speaking, there's a huge advantage to being able to say, I am. I am gives you an island of certainty that constrains the inherent chaos of existing. And one cannot exist without keeping this chaos at bay. So in thinking about this episode ahead of time, I came up with an idea for how to balance the am and the can be in a way that combines the best aspects of both. Instead of identifying with that which is static, one can identify with that which is ever-changing. For example, instead of thinking of yourself as someone who is particularly good at chess or someone who loves football, you can build up a conception of yourself as someone who cares about and strives after growth. Growth is a box that can grow larger as you expand your domain of competence. And so while that identification gives you an island of am, it's an ever-expanding island that doesn't preclude possible can-bes. 
This to me is parallel to how the term truth is used in the sciences. Capital T truth is posited as an ever-receding ideal, an ideal not given to lowercase t truths that we might discover along the way. And because scientists are aiming at capital T truth, instead of tethering themselves to lowercase t truths, they prepare themselves to shed the lowercase t theories when the falsifying information becomes sufficient. Thus, in general, I believe you should identify with that which will always stand ahead of you so you can manifest your full potential, either in the domain of self-development or in the domain of pursuing knowledge. You're illustrating the value of tying am, in my mind, to verbs rather than to explicit nouns. What it is someone does, which reveals something about themselves, rather than what box it is, as you said, they fit into. For someone who is a chess player or someone else who is an athlete, that might describe them on some level, but it's my belief that what makes someone a chess player is an aptitude for observation and forethought, maybe a penchant for strategy and competition. These are deeper truths that might, in my mind, speak more to what someone is and the expressions of who they are, their preferred sport or subject in school, are all in fact reflections of the inner truth, the inner self that they in fact are, and their lives, which are by nature transient, more a reflection of what they can be, because your passions and hobbies won't necessarily stick with you throughout your life, and I wonder if there are people who are so attached to what they are in a noun sense perhaps a writer, that as they grow older and that pursuit no longer fits their needs or interest, they feel that conflict and the tension between what they think they should do because they identify with it and what would actually bring them satisfaction or revelations about themselves. And on the note of revelations, I'm glad that you mentioned science, because the nature of what is, in reality, substantiates the entire pursuit of science. And I'm reminded of Galileo in the 1600s clashing with the church because he proposed that the earth revolved around the sun and the church's rigid statement that in fact that is not the reality and in reality it is the truth that the earth is at the center of the universe made for conflict because am can be rigid and unyielding which goes against the nature of learning which to me is one of the fundamental undercurrents in life, that we are constantly, at least in an optimistic lens, learning about one another, and I think in a very natural, maybe even subconscious way, we're always learning about ourselves. The difference in the mind of an infant between day one and day 100 is substantial, because they're acquiring all of this new knowledge. Of course, it should be noted that that pace does not always keep up over the course of one's life, and I acknowledge that. Following off of your learning point, I think there are two different forms of learning that are relevant to discuss here. I borrow this framing from the public intellectual and clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. So there is normal learning, and there is revolutionary learning. Normal learning is when you learn about and shift the means to a particular end, but you leave that end intact. So, for example, normal learning within the context of baseball might look like improving your pitching skills or changing up your batting style, but you still maintain the overarching end of becoming better at baseball. Revolutionary learning, on the other hand, is meta-learning, 
It's learning about what ends are more valuable and shifting the entire orientation of your paradigm. So revolutionary learning in baseball might be realizing that baseball's not really a worthwhile game and starting to play an actual game like football. I think this distinction is important when thinking about can be am because I am is one way of fixing a currently held end and thereby precluding yourself from revolutionary learning. Tagging on to your point about Galileo, the sciences and the worldview that has flowed down from the sciences have caught our culture in something of an am where I would prefer a can be and the capacity for revolutionary learning. I borrow some of this analysis from the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Economically speaking, the sciences have largely been driven by the pursuit of new technologies. The role of technology is to facilitate our capacity to meet our ends as efficiently and effectively as possible. As our scientific knowledge has increased and our technology has been perfected, we have become better and better at meeting our ends. There is an inherent danger in this. The more work you do to develop the means to a given set of ends, the more you come to believe normal learning is the only type of learning that exists. Thereby, the more you calcify those given ends. Think about the example of a spoiled child. A child who always gets what she wants is unlikely to learn how to be reflective about what she wants in the first place, to develop the discipline and self-reflection to re-aim her desires. Through technology, our culture has become like a spoiled child. We've become the masters of perfecting means, and we've forgotten about the necessity of being reflective about and ever altering our ends. Support for this point comes from the observation that, despite the enormous wealth of our culture, we lack a commensurate well-being. It seems like we might be wonderful at getting what we think we want, but bad at getting what we actually want. Perhaps culturally, we need to focus again on what we can be and not so much on what we think we are. Responding to your spoiled child example, am sounds like an expectation and can be feels like an opportunity. I recognize full well that opportunity is not necessarily positive and can be scary for some people, but I'm personally of the philosophy that I would far prefer a changing world because that feels more interesting and nuanced than one which is stagnant for the sake of being simple. And having mentioned society, I'm especially intrigued in this topic to think about not internal focused can-be-am distinctions, but those moments in which we label other people. How often do we come away from a first impression with an am, or in that case is, rather than saying, that was one conversation and interaction with someone, and they might be, or can be, the person who was just reflected, but that was a single context for maybe a few hours of what is a much longer life they've lived. And so it would be, at least in my opinion, intellectually dishonest to say they are something without further evidence. Now the danger there emerges when other people who have great social authority or influence say you are something and you don't have as much influence to rebut that so you start to believe them or at least don't argue against their point and as history shows in countless examples the opinions of others carry great weight with us and I worry about the dangers of labeling someone as a rigid is or are rather than acknowledging possible change in the future. There are plenty of people I don't always get along well with, 
and in more lucid moments, which I admit have been far more rare than I'm proud to say, I try to push myself to give them the benefit of the doubt, which I think is maybe a better title for this entire topic, because I don't want to believe that they are a fixed and negative agent in my life, but I'll also admit that it may be a projected fear that perhaps I am a fixed and negative agent in the lives of other people, and so I try to avoid that labeling simply because I hope it isn't directed at me someday. But in a world like ours with billions of people, and of course some of them foolish enough to put themselves on the internet, you're likely to be labeled and put in boxes by people you've never met or by people who have listened to a few conversations of yours. And I suspect our social adherence to the am rather than can be is because, as you had astutely pointed out before recording, can be connotes a certain chaos. And people rarely appear comfortable with chaos. They want to know what's going on, what they're working with, what their social or other resources are. And I completely understand that. But I think there is a fine balance. And if you frame too heavily creatures that are so flexible and so eager to express themselves, to be artistic, and to break boundaries, you will hurt feelings and cause a great deal of tension because human beings have a nature which is simultaneously chaotic and in other ways, genetically speaking and in other biological foundations, very rigid and firm. And I think a balance between the two is what's healthiest on individual and societal levels. Now that we've discussed the idea of balancing can be an am and identifying with possibility instead of fixity, I think it's incumbent upon us to explain what the process of self-creation looks like that can move one from imbalance to balance or from one self-conception to another. Who am I really? It seems undeniable that I am sitting here in a room currently with you, Kip, with a current state of consciousness and a current physical makeup, but given inference from past experience, I'm equally sure that unless I die unexpectedly in my sleep, I will be somewhere else tomorrow and to some extent someone else tomorrow. Which Dan is more real? Well, what does real mean? Things that are real are things that we care about, things that we have to respect, have to contend with. What do we care about and respect? Things that we work for, things that we sacrifice for. I argue that a priori, neither Dan is more real than the other. The Dan whom I will consider to be more real will be the Dan that I sacrifice for over time. The Dan for whom I demonstrate to myself my care of. So, do I sacrifice for the Dan sitting here at the table? Or do I sacrifice for the Dan tomorrow? Do I eat two pizzas now and ensure discomfort and shame for the Dan tomorrow? Or do I exercise now and ensure an increase in pride and possibly attractiveness and strength for the Dan tomorrow? In our psyche, we watch our actions and we teach ourselves which of ourselves distributed across time are more real than the others. And so if you want what you could be, your potential future self, the person you want to be, to be more real than the current manifestation of you, then sacrifice now for the potential better future. Cultivate discipline, delay gratification, and try to do that which will improve your lot and the lot of others, because the two are inextricably tied together. And you'll become a type of person who can transcend the demands of any given moment. In bringing up one's knowledge of the future, which appears, from my vantage point, 
a particularly human concept and also source of frustration, anxiety, and countless other issues because we all know that in our furthest future, we will meet demise. I think this topic and the language within ties to a fear of mortality, that we say we are something because that's permanent, that's here, that's now, and it can't be denied if we say it fervently enough, share it with enough people, or even, in the most exciting of circumstances, hear other people affirm or anticipate what we think we are so that it becomes a shared statement of fact, and that feels firm, where death and all that might come after threatens to take that away from us. Look at statues and other relics or monuments which state very firmly who someone was, when they lived, when they died, what events took place that the statue might commemorate or explain. We are very firmly fixed in pursuing what is, and perhaps constantly in flight of what can be, hoping to leave that behind us. So while am, at least in my current conception as we're discussing it here today, may refer to something which transcends life and could even defeat or overcome death, I think the language of what can or could be is far more precise in describing what life is and how we operate. Even human beings are the products and continuing participants in evolution, which by nature delivers no am. It is a constant churn and swirl of producing things that are because of what was previously, and none of them remain stagnant. They are all in flux. But before we close this episode, Dan, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? First, I'd like the audience to think about and discuss the malleability or fixity of human nature. In the domains of gender and sexuality, it seems an increasing number of people believe that nature is flexible, both under the pressures of culture and the individual. How much do you believe we can change ourselves? I'm curious why you all think that human beings stand up and say so emphatically and so often, I am X. Kip has postulated that it has to do with keeping chaos at bay and keeping death ever in the future. I believe that the avoidance of fear and the desire for control play a strong role. I'd like to know if audience members feel more comfortable labeling themselves with am statements rather than those around them. I'd also like you to think about shocks or surprises you've experienced, especially with other people, and if any of them arise from a firm belief that you have held which meets a can-be or a different am that you weren't expecting. Dan just mentioned sexuality, and I think many difficult and uncomfortable conversations in various families around the world have emerged when family members who were perceived to be very firmly one orientation revealed that that's not the case, and they don't in fact identify with the am which had been projected upon them. Lastly, I would encourage you to make a list for yourself about what you can be and what you are. Is it a matter of frequency that differentiates the two? And if you feel so inclined, share that list with someone else and see what they agree to or how your perceptions might differ. And Dan, as ever, I appreciate you making the time and talking about this with me today. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Kip. Well, you're very welcome. But as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we would really love to hear what you have to say. 
If you'd like to reach out, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via stride and saunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.